0: Optimal At this altitude, I can run flat out for a half mile before my hands start shaking. Can I ask you a personal question? Now it is in the perfect time. What if
1: I did the opposite? I'm a cybernetic organism, living tissue over a metal endoskeleton.
2: This episode
3: is brought to you by Athletic Greens. Hello, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to another episode of The Tim Ferriss Show. This is Tim Ferriss speaking, and uh, I should clarify that this episode is an edition of the Tim Ferriss Radio Hour, where I share the patterns and themes of world class performers that I've identified after more than 300 guests on the podcast. This particular episode is going to explore success. What does that mean? What a slippery, dangerous term. And the particular guests I selected for this episode, I would say represent... Not only achievement, but also appreciation and a well-rounded version of what I consider to be a successful human being. And by any objective measure, certainly financially or otherwise, I've interviewed some of the more successful people on the planet. And in the next hour, we will revisit specific conversations that discuss the tips, disciplines, habits, and mindsets, perhaps most importantly, that separate world-class performers who reach their goals
0: from those who fall short. This episode includes wisdom from Derek Sivers. I learned this the hard way at my last company because we had a quarter million customers. So when I'd send out an email to everyone, if any sentence was at all unclear in any way, I'd get like 50,000 confused replies from people. <laughs>
1: we also talked to Tony Robbins. You've got to become an investor. You've got to be an owner, not a consumer, yep. right? And, and the way to do that, frankly, we all know, but very few people do, and that's you take a percentage, you lock it down, it, you never see it, it's automated, and you put it aside for investment and that just occurs.
4: You'll hear from my good friend Chris Saka. Venture capital, I mean, it's totally unfair. People give me their money, I draw a management fee off it so they pay me to take their money and invest it for them.
2: Legendary investor Ray Dalio. I think three things make up a successful life by and large. First, you have to have audacious goals, big dreams.
3: And we can't talk success without including Sir Richard Branson.
5: One of the best things my parents taught me, and going back a long way, if I ever said anything about anybody, they would um, sit me in front of the mirror for 10 minutes and in order to sort of let me know how badly it reflected on me.
3: As a preface before we jump into the conversations with these guests, I thought it might be helpful to set the stage. And uh, that is with an observation that I have made certainly in interacting personally with many of my podcast guests and many name brand folks in Silicon Valley and elsewhere. And that is the following. The superheroes you might have in your mind, the idols, icons, elite athletes, billionaires and so on are nearly always walking flaws who've maximized one or two strengths. Now, I'm not saying that is true of the people in this episode, but in general, this is true. And there are some mutants, there are some freaks of nature, who are the equivalent of the Usain Bolts of the business world, for instance, but they are rare. In general, humans are very, very imperfect creatures, which would be a generous way to put it. And you don't succeed, and most of the people I've interviewed don't succeed in quotation marks because they or you have no weaknesses. Instead, you succeed because you find your unique strengths and focus on developing habits around those strengths. And you can get only a few things right consistently and outperform almost everybody else. And I think that, for instance, the investment styles of Warren Buffett and Charlie Munger, who are both brilliant, granted, but who focus on being consistently not stupid, not consistently smarter than everybody else, which perhaps is a form of being smarter, and so on and so forth. But... It's important to keep in mind, rather than putting these people on a pedestal and viewing what they do as unreachable, and in a way then absolving yourself of the responsibility of trying to improve yourself, that everyone is fighting a battle and has fought battles you know nothing about. There are many mega successful people who battle with depression, with pasts that might include alcoholism, you name it. And uh, that is not necessarily true of the people in this episode, but I think it's important to underscore that so that you think that through incremental improvement, you can actually put yourself in a position to achieve seemingly impossible things. And that is the truth. So everyone is fighting a battle you know nothing about. The icons in this episode are no different. Everyone struggles, so take solace in that. And now, without further ado, let's jump into some of the things that separate those who achieve what they set out to do from those who don't. Let's start with Derek Sivers, at Sivers on Twitter, S-I-V-E-R-S. He is one of my favorite human beings. Think of him as a philosopher king, programmer, master teacher, and perhaps merry prankster. Originally a professional musician and circus clown, whole long story behind that, to listen to my long interview with him at tim.blog forward slash Derek. Derek created CD Baby in 1998. It became the largest seller of independent music online with $100 million in sales for uh, more than 150,000 musicians. In 2008, Derek sold CD Baby for $22 million, giving the proceeds to a charitable trust for music education. He is a frequent speaker at the TED conference with more than 5 million views of his talks. Since 2011, he has published 34 books. What? Including a book titled Anything You Want, which I've personally read at least a dozen times. When you think of the word successful, who is the first person who comes to mind and why?
0: Well, the first answer to any question isn't much fun because it's just automatic, right? Like what's the first painting that comes to mind? Mona Lisa, oh, name a genius. Einstein, who's a composer? Mozart, but this is the subject of the book Thinking Fast and Slow by Daniel Kahneman. There's the instant, unconscious, automatic thinking, and then there's the slower, conscious, rational, deliberate thinking. So I'm really, really into the slower thinking, like breaking my automatic responses to the things in my life and slowly thinking through a more deliberate response instead. And then for the things in life where an automatic response is useful, I can create a new one consciously. So like, what if you asked, when you think of the word successful, who's the third person that comes to mind? And why are they actually more successful than the first person that came to mind? Well, in that case, the first person would be Richard Branson because he's like the stereotype, right? He's like the Mona Lisa for of success to me. And honestly, uh, you might be my second answer, but we could talk about that a different time. And my third and real answer, after thinking it through, is that we can't know without knowing a person's aims, right? Like, what if Richard Branson set out to live a quiet life, but like a compulsive gambler, he just can't stop creating companies? Well, then that changes everything, and we can't really call him successful anymore. What are the most common misconceptions about you? Oh, I feel pretty understood. (laughs) I don't think people are thinking about me enough to conjure up any misconceptions. You know, we think the goal of writing and communication is to be understood, but I think a better goal is just making sure that you're not misunderstood. I learned this the hard way at my last company because we had a quarter million customers, So when I'd send out an email to everyone, if any sentence was at all unclear in any way, I'd get like 50,000 confused replies from people, which would take my team like a thousand man hours to go through. So now anything I put out into the public is rewritten and edited like crazy until I think it's as clear as can be what are you world class at
3: that people might not realize? Or what do your friends know you're world class at that the rest of the world doesn't know about?
0: I've got the world's longest attention span. <laughs> I'll just sit down and do one task for like twelve hours straight or all day for twenty-five days in a row, you know. I actually I love that my kid is getting it from me by the way that we play. Like Whenever we play, I never say, let's go, time to go. We just do something until he's ready to move on. Like, he'll lead me to the river and just throw rocks in the water for a couple hours. And then we'll go to the ocean and build a fort out of driftwood for hours. And then draw in the sand with shells until he's sleepy. And we've always done it this way since he was, you know, like a one-year-old. Other families would come play on the playground for 20 or 30 minutes at a time, but we would just be there for hours with him fully immersed in some newly invented game. And what's funny is that nobody else can hang with us like this, like not even his mom. Everyone else gets so bored. (laughs) People ask if I meditate or do yoga, but nope. My daily life feels like working meditation. Even being with my kid is like meditation, as you can tell. Okay, now we're doing the format today where we're going to open up the phone to callers. But, you know, since it's Christmas Day, phones are a little slow. Hey,
3: there's a call. Hi, Derek. This is Dave DiGiovanni from Kalamazoo, Michigan in the USA. Thanks for doing the podcast with Tim. Thanks for taking this question. Uh, You've helped a lot of people make money, and I'm just wondering if success in business has to be more complicated than that. I get overwhelmed reading uh, all the, you know, there's so much content out there on how to make money. How to grow your business how to start a business and i'm just wondering if uh, business needs to be more complicated than coming up with ideas on how to help other people succeed thank you
0: well let's talk about two things simple versus complicated and easy versus hard so look at running if you talk with people who hate running You'll hear them say, "Uh, first you have to get your running clothes, then you get dressed, and then you got to put on your shoes, and you got to lace them up just right. Well, then you got to stretch, and then you got to warm up, and then afterwards you need to cool down, and you need to shower. It's such a pain." But if you talk with people that love running, they'll say, "Yeah, you just pop out for a quick run." And if you ask them about the steps involved, they'll say, "There's just one, you know, you just run." So, Knowing that we have this human nature to think of things we like as simple and things we don't as complicated, well, you can use this to deliberately simplify how you think of something you're avoiding, making it more appealing. So an ultra marathon is simple. You just run 100 miles to the end. But that doesn't mean it's easy, right? So success in business can be simple. You just find a need that people are proving they're willing to pay for and then find a profitable way to solve that need for them. But it doesn't mean it's easy. So what you have to do is notice in your mind when your complications are holding you back and then turn the dial towards simplicity in your mind. So you just jump out the door and start running. But then notice in your results when your simplified approach might be holding you back. Right? Like, perhaps you are using only one tool in your toolbox, and you need to learn others. And as for all the business advice out there, well, you know, if information was the answer, then we'd all be billionaires with perfect abs. So really you, and yeah, you listening to this, most of you probably just need to shut that shit off, put your blinders on, and get out the door and start running. Metaphorically speaking, that is.
4: Hi, this is Tobin in Boulder, Colorado, and my question is, what should someone ask to determine their own utopia? Thanks.
0: First, ask yourself, is this in theory or in practice? Like, have you proven from your experience that this is really what works best for you? Whatever idea you have, you have to challenge it. You need to argue against it, because there are so many things that seem great in theory, right? Like, for example... Say you're living in a little apartment in a noisy city. And so you think that you'd be happy if only you had a big place out in the silent country. And so you do it. You splurge, you buy a place, or you sign a year-long lease. And then you move out to the country and... uh Uh-oh. After two months, you realize that you miss too many things about the big city. You made the wrong prediction. And it happens the other way too, right? Like people moving from the quiet burbs to the big city or somebody who's an employee that thinks they'd just be happy if they could quit their job and start their own business. And oops, doesn't always work out like that. So my recommendation is to do little tests. Like, try a few months of living the life you think you want, but leave yourself an exit plan, being open to the chance, the big chance, that you might not like it after actually trying it. The best book about this subject is Stumbling on Happiness by Daniel Gilbert. His recommendation is to talk to a few people that are currently where you think you want to be and ask them for the pros and cons, and then trust their opinions since they're right in it, not just remembering or imagining. This is James McGill from Sligo, Ireland. And my question is, how do you define success? And what habits or skills are most important to living a successful life? Thanks. Okay, well, first, let's define success. Ask yourself if you think Robin Williams and Philip Seymour Hoffman were successful actors. I think it's a tough call. Like, my first reaction is yes, but the more I think about it, my answer moves halfway towards no. As a different example, think of someone you know who that you'd consider be like the definition of a total loser. And now you give that person a million dollars. Are they now a winner? Of course not. And that sounds like a contrived example, but a lot of fame and fortune is dropped into the lap of people who were just the right face in the right place at the right time, but are actually miserable, awful people by any definition, so the more you think it through, the more you realize that you have to define success first by your inner game, not some outside measure of money or fame, right? Mastering yourself, your mind, and your actions. But now, if you only master yourself and you don't help anyone else, well, then we'd call you happy, but like nobody would define you as successful, So the very definition of success must include how much you helped others. And I'll bet that if you helped thousands of people, even if you didn't ultimately profit from it, but you were personally miserable, well, we might still call you successful because you helped others, right? So the point is, if you want to be undeniably successful, you need to both master yourself and help others, um, don't focus on the money or the fame. The real success is mastering your emotions and actions and actually helping lots of people. So the definition. but now you asked what habits or skills are most important to living a successful life? Well, by this definition, habits and skills, uh, number one, the skill and habit of managing your state and your emotional reactions and actions. Um, number two, Knowing what people need in general and what you need in particular. Number three, uh, people skills. How to see things from the other person's point of view and how to communicate from their point of view. And number four, the ability to focus, learn, practice, and apply what you learn. If you can do those four things, you can do anything. You can first be happy without depending on anyone or anything in particular, And then you can understand what people need, learn how to provide it, and make sure they know it. Next up is Tony
3: Robbins, at Tony Robbins on Twitter and elsewhere, the world's most famous performance coach. He's advised everyone from Bill Clinton to Mikhail Gorbachev to Serena Williams and Leonardo DiCaprio to Oprah, who calls him superhuman, by the way. That's Oprah calling someone that. I love Tony's work and his... Personal Power 2 set, which I listened to in my POS used minivan while I was commuting during my first job, helped me start my first company. And recently... I should say, over the last several years, I've had the chance to work with Tony, get to know him directly, and it's been an incredible experience. Tony has worked with many legendary investors, including Paul Tudor Jones, who he's coached for more than 10 years, Ray Dalio, Carl Icahn, David Swenson, Kyle Bass, and many more. These are the hard-to-interview unicorns who consistently beat the market, despite the fact that it's considered by impossible by many folks. And, uh, Tony has done a great job of, I would say, condensing the lessons he's learned from them.
1: And some guys are like Templeton. I got to interview him multiple times before he died. It's like, wait for you know, the bloodletting. No, blood and, in the streets. That's you know, what he invests, yeah. Blood in the streets. But it's like when maximum pessimism hits, that's where you make all your money. That's what he did. And then there's the guys like Bogle, which is, it's the index baby. And, and right. these days, even Warren Buffett, it's the index baby. Um, so they all have approaches. But what's in common, I think, is i tell you four things I saw that stood out. And one is overly simplistic, and that's why people don't pay attention to it, but these guys pay attention to it. They don't lose. Half the peak awakening is not losing, and they are obsessed. Every single one is obsessed at not losing money. I mean, a level of obsession that's mind-boggling. And it, it isn't just these investors, you know, uh, Sir Richard Branson, for example, you know. People see Richard, and he's such an outgoing, playful, crazy guy. He's kind of an introvert in some areas, but... When it comes to athletics and taking on challenges, he's out in the world. But, you know, his first question to every business is what's the downside and how do to protect it. Right. Like when he did his piece with Virgin, I mean, that's a big risk, going to start an airline. He went to Boeing and negotiated a deal that he could send the planes back if it didn't work out and he wasn't liable. I mean, that's the level these guys think at. So they look to see how do I not lose money first? Because the average person has no clue. If I lose 50% in 2008... Well, guess what? you got to make 100% to get even, not 50% because your principal's gone down so yes. much. So it's like people don't understand. You lose 60%, it's 200% to get even. Yeah. And so the average person you know, lives in a world where they try not to lose money, but they're not obsessed. These are obsessed. Second thing they all have in common, every single one of them is obsessed with asymmetrical risk-reward, which is a big word. It simply means they're looking to use the least amount of risk to get the max amount of upside, and that's what they live for. So I'll give you an example. Paul Tudor, when I first went to do the turnaround, when Paul was having some challenging times, he'd broken his leg. You know, think about this. He did better than anybody in the history of the world during the biggest stock market drop in history, literally. And then he went to the mountain, he went to the moon. Now what? And so lost a bit of the edge. And you know, got involved in other things and so forth. And now he's got a broken leg. He's not going to the office. And I got to come in. So I had to go watch that film. That's the first thing I did. I went the look at shoes. I wanted to go see everything about him, study his physiology, the way he used to move, because this guy's not moving at all. What his face was like, how he breathed, tone of his voice. What were the physical strategies? What were the psychological strategies? What were the financial strategies? I got to go, you know, to Druckenmiller and Soros. I mean, the work I got access to back then was unbelievable. See, what was he like then to put the plan together to do this turnaround? And, when I started making those shifts in him, and you could see the shift happen immediately, it got really exciting. I got hooked on what was gonna happen. So, as I, as I did this same process, basically, I guess what, it's triggering. I'm thinking about two things at once, I did the same process during these interviews. I didn't just look at the trading strategies, I looked at the psychology of what set it up. But here's what I found with Paul Tudor at the very beginning, getting him back on track. When he was at his best, he made sure every single trade had what he called a five to one. That means if he was gonna risk a dollar, he wasn't about to risk it unless he was certain he was gonna make five. Now, you're not always right. So guess what? If I risk a dollar, make five, and I'm wrong, I can risk another dollar, I still make four. I can be wrong four times out of five and still break even. Yep. Their secret is not that they don't they're not wrong. It's they set themselves up where they risk small amounts for big rewards proportionally. Paul, you know, if he's right one out of three times, he still makes 20%. So the average person risks a dollar trying to make how much? dollar 10. That's right. About, about 10. If I could get 10%, wow, my dollar, right? 20% would be unbelievable. How often can you be wrong? Not very often. No, not at all, <laughs> right? You're in the hole. You're starting from the hole yeah. and you got to build back up. So they're asymmetrical worth. Like I was with Kyle Bass and Kyle Bass risked, check this out. In the middle of the subprime crisis, he made $2 billion out of 30 million because he risked for every six cents he risked, he had an upside of a dollar. Yeah. $0.06 cents for 100 Well, you could be wrong 15 times, yeah. and you're still okay in that area. I mean, he was brilliant to figure it out. He's a yeah. genius figured figure it out, but that risk-reward is why it is. He showed his kids. He taught. I said, how do I teach this to the average investor? Yeah. And he said, uh, well, you can teach them the way I taught my kids. And I said, how would you do that? He goes, we bought nickels. I said, what do you mean you bought nickels? He said, well, I did research. I had this question. That's another thing that all these guys do. They ask a better question we talked about. They get better answers, right? Better quality question, better quality answer. What's wrong with me? You'll come up with stuff. How do I make this happen no matter what? You'll come up with different answers. So his question was, where in the world is there a riskless trade with total upside? And he started looking around and he said, I'm worried about inflation. So he decided, well, gosh, of all the currencies in the world, a nickel, what it's made of today. It's not made mostly of nickel, by the way. He said... It's costing the U.S. government nine and a half cents to make a nickel. That's how our government functions. Right? I'm going to spend almost 10 cents to make something worth half as much. right? The Pentagon plan. Yeah, that's <laughs> right. It's the perfect plan. So he said, but you know what? Just the actual material value mm-hmm. right, is 6.8 or whatever it was, six something, six and a half we'll call it for round numbers. So he said, if I buy a nickel, it's never going less than a nickel unless you believe the U.S. government's gone. So I've got something that never goes down in value. So I got a guaranteed return. You know, I'm not going to lose my principal. But day one, it's worth 36% more than the day I bought it. How many investments can you have 100% guarantee of no loss and have 36%? I said, yeah, but that's smelt value. And I saw they passed a the law a few years ago. Uh, I think Charlie Rangel, whoever it was, was the one who pushed it through. He goes, yeah, but Tony said, that doesn't matter. He said, let me tell you why. He said, look at pennies. When they changed it from pure copper to tin and all things they've changed, what happened to the old pennies? There's a scarcity of them. And now a penny from those days is worth two cents. It's 100% more valuable. So he said that at some point, the government cannot continue to do something that costs twice as much. Some point, they'll make a change in the materials. And then all these nickels are worth an unbelievable amount. So he said, I just show my kids, here's a risk. You, you need to think different than everybody else. Don't think I have to take huge risks for huge rewards. Say, how do I take no risk and get yeah. huge rewards? And because you ask that question continuously and you believe in answer, you get it. So, you know, he said, listen, if I could put my, convert my entire wealth in nickels right now, I said, I'd do it. I said, you're insane. He goes, I am insane. But it's the best possible fundamental investment. He started telling me how to do it. He bought... 40 million nickels. Wow. He has 40 million nickels. It fills up a room bigger than this, right? better be on the ground had, floor. And he had his kids dragging them in and yeah. else, laughing,
3: having fun. I mean, it's like their little treasure room. So right. he can legitimately do like the Scrooge McDuck backstroke
1: through a pool <laughs> can, full of nickels. For real <laughs> <and> nickels. <laughs> so, so, so that's asymmetrical. Yeah. I'll give you one more and I'll shut the hell up. I don't, no, no, but no I want, but I want, but You're asking me what the. you tell me the differences. I want you know, there are differences. We can yeah. spend hours and hours on the differences, but what I think's useful is what's aligned because then it gives something universal. That can absolutely. Be applied, absolutely. Right? Um, the other one for them is they absolutely, beyond a shadow of a doubt, know they're going to be wrong. You will look at these talking heads on television and people screaming you and hitting bells and telling you what to buy and they're right, right, right. The best on earth, the Ray Dalios, right, the, the Pebbles, the, you know, I don't give a who you talk about. You're, you want to look at Carl icon, they all know they're going to be wrong. So they set up an asset location system that will make them successful. They all agree asset allocation is the single most important investment. There wasn't one person uh, in terms of your vehicle that it wasn't the most important thing, no matter how they attacked it, asset allocation was the element there. And the last one is they are they're lifelong learners. I mean, these people are machines. Like you, like me, like Peter, like most of the people you and I share as friends, they just are obsessed with knowing more. and Because the more they know, the more they realize what they didn't know, and then they apply that and they go to another level. And every time you think you're the best you can be in anything in life, your body, your emotion, your spirit, your finances, there's always another level. And these guys live by it. And the last one that I found, almost all of them were real givers. Um, not just givers on the surface like money givers, that's wonderful, um, but really passionate about giving. And it showed up once they saw what I was doing was legitimate and was really real. I mean, then they're opening up three hours of their time with something none of these guys will never give.
3: I think it was Dalio who said something along the lines of, uh, like, losers react, winners anticipate. It's um, actually me, but that's okay. It's you. I'll give it to Ray Dalio. I don't <laughs> take that, to that, as a, <laughs> that as a compliment. No, but, but the point being that the uh, and I guess Mark Twain is also in there, which was uh, what history doesn't repeat itself, but it rhymes. Yeah. So there are going to be crashes. There are going to be for black sure. swan events, and you want to have a plan in place for when
1: that happens. Exactly. Right. And Ray Dalio actually said something in there that stuck with me brutally. He said, I don't care what it is that you think you're great at investing in or you like. Most people invest in what they like, real estate or stocks or bonds or or what they think they're good at or what they've raised with. He said, whatever asset class you invest in, I promise you in your lifetime, it will drop no less than 50 and more likely 70 percent at some point. And he said, that is why you absolutely must diversify because you're saying, but I can make so much more in this side. You know, I've had people throughout the years. I, I teach this bucket theory, this idea that. If you want to do make asset allocation simple, it sounds like such a big word. Yeah. It's just buckets. Some of my money is going to go in a secure bucket. Mm-hmm. That bucket is like a church gonna. It's not going away. It's very secure type investments. Its upside is not gigantic in terms of speed. But you know what? It, the compounding process, if you give it enough time, those low returns are giant returns still. But you're not going to lose. And then there's this bucket called what most people call a growth bucket. I call it risk growth because it's really risk first. Yeah. And on that, I'm taking bigger risks for potentially greater rewards. And now the question is, how do I balance these? Am I 60-40, 50-50, 80-20? And that's designed really by three things. Number one, what's your real risk tolerance, not what you think it is. Yeah, and they're never like, the same. They're never <laughs> the same. I, you know, I do, a, I do these wealth mastery programs in it years and I, invariably I'll do some crazy thing like I'll say, every stand up, make change. They look at me and go, make change. And they start reaching their pockets and making change. And so somebody will pull out Five bucks and ten bucks. Somebody pull out a hundred dollars and they'll, someone will come up and they'll take it and give them five bucks. And they're like, you know, they, they don't know how to react. So this goes on for three or four minutes. Some music's going on. I go, okay, stop, right, sit down. And they go on like I'm talking about something else. And, in, you know, invariably, somebody's like, hey, wait a second. I want my, I want my hundred dollars back. I said, what are you talking about? They said, I want my hundred dollars back. The game's over. I said, what do you, what did you think the game was over? What you <laughs> think the game had ever gone over? Right? And who said it was your hundred dollars? Yeah. Right. And it's like it takes a while before they finally get, you know, I'm stressed about one hundred dollars. What do you think is going to happen when you lose a million or half a million or one hundred thousand or ten grand? I mean, your risk tolerance is not what we think it is. So when you find out what your risk tolerance is, and we got great ways to do that in the book, and then you figure out really how much time do you have? If you're younger, you got more time to make mistakes. And so you can take bigger risks. You know, you got timeline on your part. Your and then the other next piece is how much is your cash flow? What's yep. what's going to be the role flow? If you look at those three things, now you can decide how much goes in my secure bucket, how much goes in my growth. And if you don't make that decision, it's the most important investment decision of your life, according to everybody I interviewed, like what percentage secure, what percentage growth and risk, then when things come up, you're always going to go for the growth risk so it looks so sexy and exciting. And I can't tell you how many people over the years have done this. They're telling me, why would I put money over here when I've got this real estate and I'm making 120%. I have a friend that built... Uh, Some of the first big condos in Vegas back in the boom time. And he he actually went to my programs, sold the business he had, made $200 million, invested in these condos, started building the Panorama Towers and places of that nature. And he was up to like three quarters of a billion. I kept saying to him, dude. Take some of your growth money and put it in the secure bucket, right? How many times have I told you this? He goes, Tone, I love you. I made $200 million, because you, but now I'm, you know, I'm really, like what I touch goes in the gold. I'm listening to his ego and I'm going, I love your brother. But I said, you know how many times I have this conversation? And then guess what happens in 2008? How much do you think he lost? He was worth three quarters of a billion dollars. He'd grown that rapidly in those short years. What do you think happened to his net worth?
3: Oh, I'm guessing it went down, according to the Ray Dalio prediction. But, how about uh,
1: minus 400 million? Oh, that's, that's he didn't that's, just lose what he had, he lost everything at and beyond. So then he's trying to negotiate. So
3: he, to, was, to he,
1: was, he was leveraged. He was leveraged yeah. out, wiped, wiped himself out. So most people don't put enough in the security bucket is the lesson. And a guy like Dalio provides you a strategy that's got great sustainability, but there are many approaches in the book. But you do have to decide how much is secure, how much is growth, and i show you how to do that.
3: Chris Saka, at Saka, S-A-C-C-A, was once the cover story of the Midas issue of Forbes magazine, and I've known him for some time. Uh, But that's what happens when you are, for instance, an early-stage investor in companies like Twitter, Uber, Instagram, Kickstarter, and many more. Uh, Chris is the, the name, the face behind what will most certainly be the most successful venture capital fund of all time, lowercase one. Here are a few thoughts on success that I've found fascinating. What are the commonalities or are there commonalities when you look across these founders for whom success and massive scale just seems predestined? What are the commonalities?
4: Well I think something so we'll we'll take Evan and Travis as examples, but uh but across our most successful founders, um, you know, let's use a Matt, Matt Mullenweg, or yeah, WordPress Mullenweg. that's exactly. a. That's a billion-dollar company now, billion-plus. Um, these guys are all incredible, incredible listeners. So when they do open their mouths, it can be bombastic and offensive and aggressive and in your face. But they're all incredible listeners, and I don't just mean in casual conversation. I mean these guys go out of their way to interview other people. They really, uh, if you catch Ev, he's got a notebook always, and if you ask him to see if you're you know, last few pages of the notebook, he's just meeting with other people who's uh, you know billionaires and 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 kind of leaders whose jobs might not overlap with his at all, but from whom he 's learning veracious reader, part of why medium started was he was really back deep into long form content when he took a break from Twitter, and so that guy is just constantly learning, studying, studying, and so when he speaks, it matters. But he's listening more than he speaks. You know that about Mullenweg, One of the most thoughtful people I've yeah. never seen anyone read as many books as that guy does and retain all the knowledge. Yeah, he's prolific, and he also—it's—I uh, mean—he listens to anyone that he's sitting down with. Mm-hmm. Doesn't
3: matter if it's you know the the waitress or a primary school teacher. We've done a lot of traveling together. He was on the podcast also. Uh, very good listener.
4: Yeah, and so, and again, you just look across the board. These guys are learning. They're modeling. They're constantly researching. They're gathering data. You know, Travis would think it a competitive disadvantage for you to know exactly what's going on in his head sometimes, so he'll listen. And uh, and it's an amazing talent, I think, is, is a commonality across those people. With the, uh, the investing game that you've obviously been a
3: participant in for quite a while now, um, you have to say no a lot. And, uh, I was, you know, took a close look at, at poker in the last year with the TV show. And there were a couple of quotes that, that came up quite a bit along the lines of, you know, I made my money sitting, not playing hands. Mm-hmm. And,
4: but, but that having been said, what are some of the deals, the, the whales that got away? Yeah. So first of all, I mean, this is a rigged game, right? Mm-hmm. And, and I'm just looking to make it even more rigged. So, for those who don't know, venture capital, I mean, it's totally unfair. People give me their money, I draw a management fee off it, so they pay me to take their money and invest it for them. If I make money, then I pay them back the management fee, and then after that we split the profits and I get a really big chunk of the profits. Uh, and if I lose money, that's fine. Uh, I not It doesn't come out of my pocket. I keep my fee and my investors lose money. That's how this industry works. That's bananas, right? And at some point it's going to break because it, it's, um, you've also incepted me with the term bananas, which I've started using <laughs>
3: compulsively. <laughs> yeah. Mazio also has done the same thing. He works with Chris.
4: Yeah, it's, it's just an unforgivably unfair, uh, rigged game that's in favor of the venture capitalists. And so, um, so that. the, the the reality is the risk of an investor doesn't begin to compare to the risk of a founder, and so you know that's one thing that kind of drives me crazy sometimes about some investors and you know I love the entrepreneurial spirit that goes into building a firm I mean I built my firm from scratch and there's certainly founder type lessons in there but um, but your cash flow positive from day one when you start a venture fund uh, and your your downside is incredibly limited by the the structure of the fund so so that said. What it allows me to do is place some bets on some stuff that I I'd like to think success is inevitable of those things, but I can take I, I can look at the risk analysis and say, okay, this is a binary outcome, a one or a zero. Uh, and some of those things just don't get there. You know, one of my uh, one of my k- kind of constant recurring nightmares is about the stuff I passed on. No, that's yeah, exactly. That's so, what I was. That's what I was trying to ask. You know, I've done some deals where I thought it was going to be a lot bigger, and you know, it ends up going away, but. So the Dropbox guys, I met those guys very early on while they're still in my Combinator. I got an early look, uh, you know, had an opportunity to do the deal, and I pulled those guys aside and I was like, hey, look, at Google, we we're using a version of this called uh, Platypus, you know, which became G-Drive, and they're going to crush you guys, man. So you should probably find some other product to pivot to. <laughs> that probably cost me hundreds of millions of dollars. Um, the uh, Did they give you a pat on the head and walk away? Yeah, yeah. No, I mean, it's when I see Drew, the CEO of Dropbox, I bring it up before he can. That's uh, this, this a good is my self-defense. Number, because, yeah, yeah, I just get, I get it out there right away. Um, the Airbnb guys at Y Comer, same thing, Incredible I, business. an business, an amazing business. And one to be proud of too. I mean, that's, I'm, I'm really jealous. I'm not in that business, not just for the money, but I love what they do. I'm really, um, I admire them a lot in their culture, but at the time they were, they were allowing you to rent out a room in somebody's house while the owner was still there. And that just seemed really scary to me. And I pulled the guys aside and I was just like, guys, you know, Somebody's gonna get raped or murdered in one of these houses and the blood is gonna be on your hands. I literally said that out loud to them. <laughs> and what's that worth? Like fifteen or twenty billion now? Now in fairness, you you're probably not wrong, right? I mean, at a certain scale. At scale it has to something's happen. Something's gonna happen. Yeah. Yeah. I mean I like to say sometimes like when you think about scale, like someone who works at Walmart murdered someone last night. Right. There's just no doubt about it. Yeah. At that scale, with a few million employees, one of them murdered somebody last night. You have to look at it like uh, Edward Norton in Fight Club, like an actuarial analysis
3: yeah. for insurance, uh, which is terrifying. But that's the reality of big numbers. Um,
4: but, but but there's an, yeah. I'll, I'll tell you, So there's one other famous one. Um, there's a bunch of these, but um, actually, I'll give you two, Nick, because I, I wasn't rem- I reminded this until recently. Nick Woodman from GoPro. <laughs> Came to Google. Now, I wasn't an investor at the time, but I did a lot of Google's investments and partnerships. And so Eric Schmidt, CEO of Google, said, hey, will you come in here and sit with this pitch? You know, he's a friend of a friend, said we got to meet this guy. So Woodman comes in with GoPro. And Eric's like, I don't know. And I was like, we'd be, we'd be foolish to do this deal. How is this guy from Santa Cruz going to compete with all these Asians and building hardware you know, you can't you can't hold a candle like the Taiwanese and the Koreans. I was like no dice, man. Let this guy go. And I think I introduced him to somebody over YouTube just as a consolation. <laughs> I saw that dude this winter skiing. He's worth like three or four billion dollars now, and he didn't forget that meeting. <laughs> um, so, and then the Snapchat guys. I gave a talk in L.A. and they came up to me. I never met them before. They came up after the talk and said we're big fans. We'd really like to work with you. And I was like, eh sure i mean i know you guys are up to something cool i admire it i took like eight weeks to set up the meeting and by then the benchmark guys had done that deal (laughs) that's again oh my god i can't imagine how much money we've we've left on the table as a result of that so um you know i'm i like to say when i'm wrong i'm wrong when i'm right i'm really really right Ray Dalio, at Ray
3: Dalio on Twitter, is one of the 100 most influential people in the world, according to Time, and one of the 100 wealthiest people in the world, according to Forbes. Because of his unique investment principles that have changed industries, CIO Magazine dubbed him, quote, the Steve Jobs of investing, end quote. Ray believes his success is the result of principles he's learned, codified, and applied to his life and business. Those principles are detailed in his book, aptly titled, principles and he included some of his wisdom in our interview if we flash back to when you first began uh bridgewater associates so out of your two-bedroom apartment at 26 years old do you recall any of your first big wins or things that you considered big wins at the time And, and i'd love to just hear you describe what made those a big win in other words the thinking
2: behind it the funny thing is um i can hardly ever remember my big wins i do remember my big lo- losses or my big mistakes <laughs> we you can know? talk we can talk about those it, too it, yeah it, it's so it's so funny because you know i i look at it and i said well i i guess i must have had a bunch of wins or successes because of you know uh, how things have went you know i the business is good and uh, done well and all of that. But like I think of my history and I really think of those uh, mistakes and I think that's so great because it shows that that's a much better learning tool. But uh, okay, so my big wins, you don't know, no, know. I think about that uh, at that time, I think, no, I my the things I remember were the, were the fun things, but a guy, you know, guys I played rugby with and parties and, um, and those kinds of things. I don't remember a particularly big winning. Well, I do remember some things. You know, I remember one time um, when we got the Kodak account. Mm-hmm. Again, I was, uh, it, it, you know, in a position, it's, okay, here's a guy, and he's analyzing the markets, and then he has a s- small team of people, and he's analyzing the markets. And so, I didn't have a long track record, and I didn't have an institution, and a, you know, sort of competing with the big institutions of the world, the J.P. Morgans and everybody. And uh, and by the way, we beat them, <laughs> but anyway, um, which shows that the individuals, the powers within the individual. But anyway, I remember when we got the Kodak account, um, because at the time Kodak was uh, you know a big important client and them giving us that account uh, was a big deal for us because it was kind of a stamp of institutional um, approval. And it was, oh, I remember, you know, the money mattered too, because we would know that we were a bit more financially secure. So I remember that as a big win. And I remember it so terrifically, because we were asked to submit um, research information. And we were just a small team of people, and you know, we stayed up all night, and with you know, pizza and beer and all of that. And um, I remember it so sweetly because it was the dream of making our miracle happen, and we and the pulling together. That's the meaningful relationships part. I believe that I want meaningful work and meaningful relationships, and so. That was what that was about, and we got the account and we won, and that was a, you know that was a big deal.
3: Why did you guys win?:
2: I think it's a combination of, of being, you know, totally unconventional and having better processes, and then there's a hell of a lot of determination. I think three things make up a successful life by and large. First, you have to have audacious goals, big dreams. Then when you are headed toward those goals, you're going to have problems. You're going to deal with reality. You have to deal with those problems in that reality, realistically, learning from mistakes, writing down those principles and the like. So that's the second part dealing with reality in a practical way where you learn about mistakes. And then the third, is, is determination because if if you're going for your goals and you're encountering your mistakes and you're learning and you do that with determination you're going to get better all the time you' go- you can't help but get better and you do that a long enough amount of time and you're going to far exceed your dreams my su- success has far ex- succeeded what I ever imagined you know one bit at a time and it's just that process. If
3: you were to conversely look at intelligent people who are unhappy, what do you think the primary causes of that unhappiness are?
2: I think it goes back to this notion of meaningful work and meaningful relationships. Uh, intelligence a- and happiness probably have no correlation with each other. In studies, the, it's repeatedly been shown, and money is very little correlated with happiness. The highest correlation with happiness is community. Am I part of a community? Do I feel connections with other people? That's been you know ge- literally genetically programmed into us from it's estimated between a million and two million years ago before it was we were even mankind. So that sense of meaningful relationships, I think is very, very important. And if you have meaningful work, like you're on a mission and you have meaningful relationships, I, I, I think it's almost impossible not to be happy. Uh, I mean, there'll be unhappy moments in your life that you encounter this thing or that. But uh, the people who are unhappy seem to be missing those things. Last but certainly not least,
3: we have Sir Richard Branson, at Richard Branson on Twitter and everywhere else, founder and chairman of The Virgin Group, a world-famous entrepreneur, adventurer, activist, and business icon. He has launched a dozen billion-dollar businesses and hundreds of other companies. I loved our conversation and highly recommend you check it out. Of course, listen to the whole thing. But here are a few highlights you might find valuable. You strike me as a really good negotiator by... By necessity, you'd have to be. If you had, say, a would be entrepreneur or a university senior, someone who's about to graduate and go into the real world, and you wanted, they tell you that they want to become a very good negotiator, a very good deal maker. How would you train them, or what would you recommend they do or read to become a better negotiator or deal maker? Because you seem very, very astute and subtle in structuring things. In, in very smart ways what would you say to someone who wants to develop that skill set
5: i'm sure that there must be ways of being taught it but in my opinion nothing beats um beats you know personal experience you know my education was you know being thrown into the jungle being thrown into the real world age 15 or 16 and having to survive uh, and it was an incredible education and you know i, I learned about everything in, in life you know um, you know I'd traveled a lot I've met met people all over the world I you know I had to you know do a lot of different negotiations. you know I think as I got older I've realized the that the one of the most important things about a negotiation is striking a deal that, that is uh, fair to both sides I also realized as I get older that you're always come across the same people time and time again in life and so your reputation is everything you know in my new book Finding my virginity, I talk about our dealings with Delta and how you know they they felt that they'd legged us over on, on in, in in a clause in a contract and how they 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 came to us to rectify it and you know this that that's something I'll never forget in, and most likely will will be you know partners with Delta for the rest of my life because of that you know that you know that that kind of, that kind of approach and um, you know so I think. You know, if you, if you realise that your reputation is all you have and your personal reputation, the reputation of your brand, then you've got to uh, make sure that you're, you're, you're negotiating a deal that, that you're not going to be unhappy with and, and, that, uh, and you think of all the things that could potentially go wrong and how you can get out of it if something goes wrong. But equally important is, you know, is trying, to, trying to strike a, a fair balance with the people you're negotiating with.
3: And when uh, when we're looking internally, you mentioned how your teammates at the record company thought you were crazy when you brought up the airline. Are there any business ideas that you're glad your coworkers or team have prevented you from doing?
5: As you know, my nickname is Doctor Yes, right. and um, <laughs> you know I I have books like Screw It, Just Do It, and um, I think to be honest, if I want to do something, one one of the advantages of owning the company is. I can normally ultimately get away with it. I mean, I'll try, obviously, to carry people with me. But um, and, I, and I'm sure there have been one or two things which I, where I have bullied, uh, bullied the process through, where I've regretted, well, not regretted, I've never regretted anything, but where, where uh, perhaps uh, I should have listened more to others. But um, I can't think of anything that uh, where, you know, where they persuaded me not to do it. I think most likely you know, when it comes to a decision about whether to do something or not, I'm like to think of myself as a benevolent dictator. <laughs> 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 I get that's the one that's the one thing I sort of generally get my own way on. We look, we would never have gone into space travel. We'll come to that I'm sure later on in this talk, you know, unless I was willing to to do to do things against the against the sensible, you know, what would you know on paper be sensible advice of my uh, fellow directors.
3: We will definitely get to to space travel. What I'm curious about, because it seems if I look at many of the businesses that you've started, the positioning is often against a particular incumbent. In the case of, say, airlines, for instance, that seems to be a common element in a lot of the company or, or product launches. And I want to connect that with... So just some of your well-known adventures, and you'll see where this is going in a second. I mean, you've driven a tank down Fifth Avenue, crossed the English Channel in an amphibious car, took a 407-foot jump off the Palms Casino Resort in Las Vegas, uh, gone from Morocco to Hawaii in a hot air balloon. You, you are very, very adept at PR, stunts, getting attention for the things that you do and the companies that you do is, are there any particular best practices or a playbook that you have found to be very, or principles for that matter, helpful with the launching of a, a new company uh, or product?
5: I don't think so. I mean, I'm a great believer in trying, if, if, if your team work really hard to to launch a new business with you or for you. The least I think I can do is, is make a fool of myself, make sure that uh, that new business ends up on the front pages of the newspapers rather than an anecdote on the pages of the newspapers. So if that means having to use myself to you know, put the new company on the map, I will do so. And I will try to do it in a way that makes people smile and that that doesn't horribly backfire on me. It's like occasionally it has backfired. you know, And I suppose it's like being... A host to a party i mean if you're the host of the party if you if you stand in the corner of the room and you sip your sherry and stand around with your fellow directors all in suits everyone's going to have a thoroughly dull party and yeah no nobody will have a good time if you're you know the host of the party and you're first in the swing pool and and everybody else jump in too uh, yeah, they may be a bit cold for the rest of the evening, but you know they, they they're going to have a great evening. And I think yeah, the same applies when you're launching a business. You know, to, you know make make sure that you um, put it on the map, and um, um, and just occasionally uh, it will it, it will backfire.
3: You mentioned space travel, which I do want to use as a touching off point to ask you. F- roughly fifty years after starting your first business, why why write Finding My Virginity? What was the, the catalyst for that? Why do
5: it? I actually think every, everybody should write um, a book about their lives. I've persuaded a number of people to write books about their lives, Steve Fassett, for instance, um, anyway, and a number of people. Um, but it, you know, you don't have to have led a very public life. I think everyone's led interesting lives. Uh, your, your children and your grandchildren you know, will be fascinated by the lives, the lives you lead. and so. I wrote a book, um Losing My Virginity," when I was a young man about all all the adventures. Um, you know, it, it became a bestseller and and sold millions of copies. But you know, I was I was quite a young man when I wrote it, and the last twenty years or so, have, uh, um, I've been very full and and very rich and you know extraordinary. So, um, so I thought I would write. Um, in a sense a sequel to losing my virginity which which we called finding my virginity and uh, and if I live another twenty years i've a, a virginity found I suspect will be my last book but, <laughs> um, but uh, we'll, 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 we'll see how we go but no but I think uh, you know I think it's important I, I love reading reading and learning and I think other others might enjoy hopefully will enjoy it and you know when I write books I try to I, I try not to make them like a you know, and and then and then we did this and then we did that. Just try to make it a really good, gripping read and and an enjoyable read, and and not try to sort of you know, cram in everything one's done in 20 years. But um, and and hopefully people can get a few gems from it as well.
3: What is the book or books you've given most as a gift, and why? Uh, outside outside of your own uh, books, are there any particular books that you've given or recommended to others the most?
5: Well, climate change is something which I've, I've spent a lot of time on. I would highly recommend a book called, by Tim Flannery called The Weather Makers, which uh, was one, one of the books that opened my eyes to the problems that we have in the world. I've, I'm just reading um, um, Homo Deus, which which I find is, and um, uh, you know, I, I, I will carry on to read Sapiens, his, uh, his first book, um, or one of his first books. And i just love love you know uh you know, love the style of his writing and and you know I love books where you're learning you're learning something from them and um, uh, rather than if i if i want to if i want fiction i'll I'll get a good film out um so um if i'm if I'm reading books I like to read books which have got some substance i love
3: in the last let's just call it 5 years or so what new belief behavior or habit has most improved your life or it what what habit has improved your life could be any new belief behavior or habit that has uh, markedly
5: improved your life if we could go back a bit further than the last 5 years i think oh yeah I we think... can no we can go back we can go okay, back can, as far as yeah. you like absolutely one of the one of the best things my parents taught me and going back a long way uh if i ever Said anything Ill about anybody, um, they would um, sit me in front of the mirror and um, for ten minutes, and in order to sort of let me know how badly it reflected on me. So, uh, you know, I like to think I've, I've never, gen- you know, I've generally never spoken ill about other people, and I think that's been one of the one of the, you know, best bits of advice that I've ever given. Uh, sorry, I've ever received, or and, and obviously then given, Archbishop Tutu, who. Uh, chaired the elders which is an organization that we've run for for 10 years now um uh, you know he was the epitome of forgiveness with the truth and reconciliation commission in south africa um when um, nelson mandela you know took over power and um, you know i think just you know people nations you know it, it should try we should all try to run based on that philosophy um and i think we're, we're, the world would be a happier place if that if that happened
3: you you mentioned nelson mandela this is clearly not one of my uh, stock rapid fire questions but uh, i I've, I've heard you refer to nelson as a mentor uh, are there any key lessons or takeaways or memorable sentences or anything that come to mind when you think of your interactions with nelson mandela
5: well you know i was lucky enough to um get to know him very well over the years, even to the extent that uh, on July the 18th, we shared a birthday and, and he would ring me every single birthday to wish me a happy birthday. And, you know, I remember the, yeah, the sadness when I didn't get that call not so many years ago. You know, he had an absolute joy for life and, um, you know, he would dance, he would smile, he would embrace everybody. But he had a, a tough side to him as well. And um, I remember one lunch I had with him uh, early on in our relationship where um you know i'd been warned that he was always trying to uh, extract money uh for for good causes so you know we had the first course then we had the second course then we had the pudding and we were onto the coffee and i thought my god i've got away with it and uh, <laughs> and, and, and and then and then he turns to me and says ah oh, richard uh, Last week I had lunch with Bill Gates and uh, he gave me $50 million for such and such a course. And uh, anyway, so he did not miss an opportunity. Yeah. I mean, I've not, apart from maybe Archbishop Tutu, I've I've really never met and haven't met anybody as extraordinary in my lifetime as him.
3: Well, there you have it, folks. I hope you enjoyed this episode of the Tim Ferriss Radio Hour, focusing on success and more importantly, the prerequisites, some of the ingredients that lead to success. And very often it's by focusing on the mindsets and the approaches and the tools that leads you to success as opposed to chasing the specter that you might call success. These Radio Hour episodes continue to be an experiment, so I always appreciate your feedback. Let me know what you did like, let me know what you didn't like, how we can improve it, or other topics or themes that you'd like me to cover. So please let me know on Twitter at T Ferris, T-F-E-R-R-I-S-S. And until next time, thank you so much for listening. I'm oh. sorry. This episode is brought to you by 99designs. I've used 99designs for ages, since even before podcasting was a thing. And I've used them for all sorts of graphic design needs. They are fast and they are convenient. So whether you need a logo, website, book cover, or anything else, I've done competitions, for instance, for book covers related to the 4-Hour Body. 99designs makes great design accessible to everyone and it makes the process so much easier. And I used them recently for artwork and illustrations inside of my Tau of Seneca set of books. So, this is a collection of stoic writing and modern interviews and so on. So, for the Tau of Seneca, I decided to use their one-to-one project service. In this case, you invite a specific designer to your project, agree on a price, and then work together until you're satisfied. And the artwork just blew my mind. Uh, you have to check it out. I kid you not. So, you can check out some of the artwork from Tao of Seneca as well as some artwork and logos and so on that your fellow listeners have had made at 99designs.com forward slash Tim. That's 99designs.com forward slash Tim. I really suggest you check it out. And right now, you guys can receive a free $99 upgrade on your first project. This gets you, I think, 130% more submissions. So people who want to work with you and give you first drafts of what you're looking for. To access your free design, please visit 99designs.com forward slash Tim and click the link
2: on the landing page. That's 99designs.com forward slash Tim.